you know, when we're making pots, we're not just making pots, we're creating ourselves. Welcome to the Creative Habits Podcast. My name is Wyatt Christman. I'll be your host. This week, we have Alan Steinberg, where we delve into the deeper aspects of creativity and self. Enjoy the show. Uh, good morning. Um, I'm Alan Steinberg. Um, and the, the answer to who are you and what you do just keeps getting harder and harder because we define ourselves by what we do. Oh, I'm a lawyer. Oh, I'm a doctor. Oh, I'm a potter. And I'm, I'm finding it harder and harder to, to say what I do. It's more like what I have or uh, things that I include in my life. Uh, I, I would have said years ago that I was a potter. I also would have said years ago I was a teacher. Uh, and now more recently, I could say I'm a psychotherapist. In fact, I do all of those things. But I always have to say, and I'm more than any of them. You follow that? Definitely. Now, it's interesting. There's a conjunction between, um, you, you know, some of your past uh, lives, so to speak, and what you do now, like the interjunction between pottery and the the um, psychological part of, of bringing, you know, somebody, uh, you know, getting their emotions out through uh, art. Is that, can you ex- uh, give a little explanation on how that works? I can probably give you a, a <laughs> long one. Um, I, maybe a little biography here makes sense. Um, I started working with clay during my senior year of college, which was not a great time in my life for personal reasons, having to do with my family, but also because I became aware that, uh, my chosen major, which was music at that time, wasn't going to be, um, my pathway in life. And so I was somewhat lost and, uh, watching a woman throw on the wheel uh, on a summer camp trip really caught me in a way that I didn't expect. And I found myself sneaking into the pottery studio of the college late at night when it was officially closed, but the janitor was leaving the door unlocked for the addicts among us who, who couldn't wait to get in some extra time. Um, the rest of the semester, I can't even remember. It was just I'm in the studio and I'm working and everything else slips away. And so the rest of my life was, has been a kind of balancing act between that and a teaching career. After I got out of college, I was teaching kindergarten at Bedford-Stuyvesant in New York and then in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and doing clay work on the side. Um, and I got to a point where I felt like when my son was born that I'd rather be home hanging out with my son and doing clay rather than giving myself to a public school system there where the kids were wonderful and the administration took energy from me rather than putting it back. Um, so I ditched my, my uh, teaching job just as I was about to get tenure, just in the nick of time. Oh. <laughs> and uh, went full time as a clay artist trying to, earn a living and feed my family and uh, that's a challenge yeah i'll bet that would be i mean to to it make is. that leap there's a there's a, a lot of faith in your whole process as an artist uh but you were able to just say i'm gonna do it did or did you have any sort of um plan b if uh, that didn't work or you did you just go for it uh plan b came along when plan a was going to take a little longer than i figured uh i quit the job based upon the notion that I had a 
wholesale and retail show in, in Maryland lined up and I was going to sell a bunch of pots and come home with orders enough to get me through the winter. And that didn't pan out. Oh. I, I came back with a couple of months worth of orders, but winters along in Massachusetts, um, uh, which is where I was living at the time. Um, and so we made a decision to have the 20-acre piece of property that we owned logged. And they did it in the winter, and they did a, a pretty decent job, and I was able to uh, get by for a while while I learned the ropes. I mean, I didn't quit my job knowing what I was doing as a potter. I figured it out as I went along. You know, the school of hard knocks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, which I think, from a hindsight point of view, is a great place to get your education. Um, hindsight, hi. yeah. Hindsight. <laughs> um, but during can be a little, little interesting. Well, interesting is good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there are times when it's tough. When, when I realized that uh, a teacher of mine's fantasy curriculum for being a potter includes how to fix your car. Um, and I only realized that as when I broke down on the road on the way to some show with a full load in the back. Uh, realize, okay, this is part of the learning process about being an independent craftsman, is that you have to know all these things about being in business. You're the, the publicist, you're uh, the bookkeeper, you order materials, you order parts. Uh, if you get to a certain point, which I did, and you start to have help, you become a business manager. Oh, and you get to make pots. Yeah, <laughs> and fix your car. <laughs> and fix your car. Yeah. Uh, it, you have to learn to do all of it. And I think on a, you know, from the hindsight point of view again, it's a really good thing I didn't know what I was doing or what I was getting into because if I knew, I might have backed away and played it safe. Really? If you yeah. knew, even from today? With, if I knew. If you knew, then. yeah. 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 What about today? Because today, if you had to repeat that, uh, you know, there's technology that allows a little bit of leverage that you might not have had in the past. Do you feel like that might have gotten you through? I mean, if I'd had it available then? Internet and, and ability to, to, you know, use that uh, to sell online, let's say, or? I think it's an unanswerable question. I've been kind of slow. Uh to embrace all the technology that's available simply because the things that have emerged over the years as more and more important to me have taken precedence over investing my time in uh, tackling the technology learning curve. I've mastered Microsoft Word partially at this point. I did get my name up on Facebook, but then I backed away from it because it was swallowing my life. Yeah, uh, and uh, I don't know how much of that I have left at sixty-eight. You know, you get to a certain point, and you have certain experiences, and your mortality becomes more and more evident. Uh, <laughs> right, and you. So, you, what is important, uh, you know, starts to change. I imagine. Um, so, is it has that changed my work? Just change your work. And, and, change my work. Yeah. Change everything, knowing that I am not immortal. Right. So you're doing less pottery now. Are you doing any? or? Um, I'm doing less pottery. Um, I make bowls. Uh, I make pinch bowls. 
that I call blessing bowls, where I sit and hold the clay in one hand and pinch it in the other while imagining the blessings in my life. And those are all donated to a, um, uh, a fundraising dinner called the Empty Bowls Dinner that my collective pottery studio hosts. Um, and people come and buy tickets for it and pick out the bowl that they like the most. Everything is a handmade bowl. We, we managed to scare together about a thousand bowls every year somehow. Yeah. Um, and people pick out the bowl they want and various organizations donate food, musicians perform and their ticket for the dinner gets them that bowl, which they keep forever and ever. And all the money goes to feed the, uh, to support the Brattleboro area drop-in center, uh, one of the local soup kitchens. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, um, when I pitched this event to the other members of the Brattleboro Clayworks, uh, there was no resistance whatsoever to the amount of labor that everybody was going to have to take on to make this work because the basic concept of what we were doing, essentially feeding something much larger than ourselves, was very widely appealing. And people, we've been doing it 12 years now, and it keeps getting bigger and more successful. And people come to the dinner for the first time, um, buy a bowl, get taken over by the event, and then they want to volunteer to help. Really? Wow. So I make bowls. Right. But it's more than just a bowl because you've got the process, uh, the blessing process that brings it to a different level for you. And also the audience that you're making for the whole meaning behind it is more than a, a, a state of commerce and, and trade for money. It, it's There's much more involved. I like the the mm -hmm. sound of like a person picking out the bowl. They must feel the energy coming through from when you made it. Right, you would. That's my intention. Yeah, that's my belief. You know, my sense of um, the uh, what's the word for it? Uh, the catalytic quality of clay. It both stores and releases energy when you touch it. Uh, says to me that whatever work I do on it, whatever my mood I'm in when I do it, gets somehow stored. In the in the uh, in the material, and I mean this both metaphorically and literally. It does happen. It's, How is it measurable, or did you? Yeah, that it's been measured. You know, uh, uh, who was it? Guy Murchie wrote years and years ago about how they had measured the ability of clay to to give off uh, ultraviolet light when you when you squish it. And, and to continue to do that for a long time. And I think that's about the fact that clay molecules are all surface and almost no interior. And so when you squeeze the clay, the molecules get rubbed up against each other, releasing the electrical charge along the surface. But also receiving the electrical charge that's coming down your hands from the rest of your, your being and gets deposited in the clay. So there's an exchange going on. Wow, I've never. Wow, that's so. What about the firing process? Because you know, bisque firing and then and the high fire, doesn't that affect? Like, wouldn't that uh, affect it at all, or, or bring out the squeeze out all that energy from? Well, you know? you know, nobody's ever asked me that question before, and it's a fabulous question, and I don't know the answer. Right, because uh, I certainly know that the experience of going through. Intense heat uh, changes the molecular structure of the clay as well. 
So since I do not know the answer to that, I'll go with um, uh, a wise quote that I got from a friend, which was sometimes you need to be able to believe it to be able to see it. Right. Yes. yes. Um, so I still go with the notion that whatever blessings I've imparted into the bowl, that process is available to somebody who lives with it, especially if they know it, that I've done it that way. So I always little include a note with my bowls to tell them that that's the way I'm approaching it. So hopefully at that point they can believe it too, which means they can see it and feel it. And do you think that comes through with other mediums, artistic mediums beyond clay, like with painting and with other artistic mediums that, that the energy um, that produces the art, um, I, as I'm saying it, it seems like an automatic yes, because when you look at, at, at any of those, you, you're going to feel that, uh, yeah, come through. I believe that very strongly, yeah. 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 That, you know, uh, whatever medium we're working in, uh, uh, we're creating or celebrating a reality, uh, maybe both. And uh, the more you own that and the more conscious you make that project, the more it has this capacity to affect you emotionally and spiritually. So is that how did is that part of what lended yourself to move towards the psychological aspects of of things and um, make that connection? It was a very gradual process. You know, after we had the land logged. Um, I would take breaks every day from the studio, which was in the basement of the house, and go out with a handsaw and cut up the slash that the loggers left and pile it besides the, the, the roads to haul back to the house so we could heat the house with the slash. You know, I would be able to pull in about eight cords a year. But I found myself getting to know the land better than I ever had before. And I found myself at one point sitting on a rock overlooking a beaver pond that was on one small part of our property that and I on the rock I could look down into one of the little pathways through the water that the beavers had created and down there in the water was a pipe that I figured out was from my spring in the woods out to the house so we had a real connection with this beaver pond because the pipe that gave us water was kept from freezing by being underwater in the winter in the beaver pond. Um, and so I would go out there and sit quite often. And uh, I got into a little battle with the town one winter when the road crew got upset with the beavers for blocking the culvert under the paved road. And they yanked the dam and the, the whole pond emptied and my pipes froze. Oh, oh, yeah. oh. Um, And I wound up using this outhouse for the winter that was on the property. I would take a uh, uh, a toilet seat and leave it in the house by the wood stove and carry it out with me. <laughs> because and it's I so cold. a book and a flashlight. Yeah. <laughs> and the book that I carried with me was one that I had come upon accidentally in a bookstore in New York City called Miracle of Love by Ramdas. And the book says, just read these stories, you know, one or two of them and put it away. Um, and I ignored his advice and tried to, you know, uh, bulldoze my way through the book to no avail. 
until the pipes froze and this became good reading material to take out there. And then all of a sudden I had to, to, to follow his instructions. I had to read a story or two, which might be a half a page or a quarter of a page or a sentence or a page and a half. And then something in the story would be so powerful that I could not continue to read. So I read this one book for an entire winter, and the day the pipes thawed was the day I finished the book. Oh. Weird. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. It was a, you know, a wonderful time. I sat out there at 20 below zero, nice and warm, with the moon coming down through the trees, reading my little book. <laughs> uh, and so when the spring came around, I found the process of going out into, into this spot by the beaver pond to read was a very different process now. And I had this experience out there, I don't know how it happened, of just sitting there and stop. I stopped being Alan and I became the pond, became the rock under me. I came to dead trees out in the middle that had been drowned by the pond and became the deer coming down to drink and the, the uh, raccoons as well and the, the red-winged blackbirds singing. I became the... the um, the dragonflies. I felt like I, the boundary between me and all of it ceased to exist. It was, uh, as a friend of mine later described, he says, "That's the classic parting of the veil." Then I went, "Yeah, what do you mean? What does he mean by that? The parting of the veil?" Well, okay, I get it now. Um, you know, I stopped being that that person who says, "Well, I don't know if I believe in a higher power." Besides myself, at that moment I felt like certain that the world was one, and I was just part of it. You know, that question went away for me at that moment. The only question became, how do I stay awake to it in the midst of the van is breaking down on the way to a show, kind of stuff. Right, or, right. Or I'm at a show where, and you know, nobody's coming into my booth. Or I've shipped a bunch of pots to somebody and three months have come, gone by and they haven't paid me for it yet. And i got to pay the mortgage. It got to the point where I had that as something that um, supported me a little bit in the tough moments. And uh, so I continued with that for a few years and I got invited to teach the Vermont Clay Studio. But I taught there and... Uh, was given a videotape of somebody who had whose book I loved, uh, who'd been teaching there a year before by the name of Paulus Barrington, um, who had written a, a really seminal book called Finding One's Way with Clay, which purported to be about how to pinch pots and how to mix color into clay, but it was also his philosophical uh, me, uh, meanderings. Right. And um, that was the part of the book I continue to go back to today and read pieces from to my students. Because um, he would do things uh, included in his fantasy curriculum for being a potter would be how to fix your car, how to do woodworking, but also things like how to be a person, the myths of man, uh, the theater of experience. Uh, I can't even remember all of them, but so, he woke me up to the fact that, you know, when we're making pots, we're not just making pots, we're creating ourselves, which uh, is heavy. Yeah, it was well, heavy. It, it yeah. is. And so you were able to incorporate teaching pottery with the, the 
the um, idea ideals of, of being human then were you able to combine so you had your ideal curriculum then is that well that was certainly well it was certainly pointing me in a direction okay a um, couple of years later while trying to find a workshop with him I wound up instead taking a workshop with his good buddy George Kokus from the University of Oregon it was called the workshop was clay and mythology uh, it was held at, uh, in the ceramic studio at Bennington College and George would tell us bits and pieces from a, an important myth and then we would work in clay and then stop and look at what we had done and what other people in the workshop had done and talk about its significance from the point of view of the great myths. So we're hearing about the teachings of folks like Carl Jung and, and Joseph Campbell and looking at our work and seeing what it is in the great myths that speaks to us. You know, we're talking about the creation myths, we're talking about the hero's journey, and then towards the end of this week-long workshop, we're talking about an elder myth. And I found myself doing this sculpture without knowing why I was, I was called to this particular image in this story. And subsequently, every, after doing it, I realized that this particular story more and more was calling me to give back for the blessings I'd received by sharing what I'd learned. That it was no longer so much about making my work and selling it, even though the work was important to me. It was not so much about that as sharing the importance of the experience of working in clay, what it did to four people, did two and four people when they, when they worked with it, if we could share it on the most deep levels. So I began to be more interested in teaching again. Um, and so I began mixing teaching and clay work in my life. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, so that mix goes on to this day. So um, you still incorporate it, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so how do you use it as, as a way to, um, you know, get through emotional blocks or how do you incorporate it to understanding, uh, the deeper aspects of being human or, or understanding, you know, an enlightening experience that you had at the pond? How, how do you, how do you recreate that kind of shift in, in people's minds? Uh, sure. yeah. Uh, Here's a, here's a particular example that really made a big difference for me. 2001, I was invited uh, to be on staff for the Men's Wisdom Council at Rowe Conference Center in Rowe, Massachusetts. Um, and it's, this is a group of men. Uh, women don't happen to be involved in it. Uh, the work that came out of it, I, I feel like I could do with men and women together. But this happened to be a group of men. And the way it worked is after the men arrived and were introduced, they were told the myth for the week, which happened to be the myth of Theseus going down into the labyrinth to have a confrontation with the Minotaur. From a psychological point of view, going down into the cave represents going down into your, the darkest parts of your psyche to encounter parts of yourself that you may be scared to death to, uh, to confront. Uh, so they're told the myth, they're blindfolded, they're led with their hands on the shoulder of the man in front of them on a blindfold walk through the woods as it gets dark and while the rest of the staff is, is changing. Um, 
the lodge into a into a, a, a maze. And when they come back with the blindfolds on, they crawl through the maze. You know, over logs, wet leaves, up and down stairs that happen to be carpeted. And at the end, they're invited, having done that, and that's a challenge physically to do all that. They're invited. They want to know if they're willing to meet um, their their minotaur. No one said no. Everyone said yes. So one by one, they stand up. They're led still blindfolded to a piece of plywood with a hole the size of their heads cut in it and gently led so that their face is right in the hole. And then they are invited to take off their blindfolds and see the monster. Facing them through the hole is a mirror. Painted on the other side of the plywood around the hole are some things that indicates that the face they see in the mirror has horns, big fangs, is very hairy. The implication is you want to meet the monster, look inside. Right. So that's the setup for the clay work. Then we get out a thousand pounds of clay. We do a bunch of exercises that have no specific goal other than to loosen them up and get their bodies into the process. Right. Okay. Then comes the real exercise. Make your monster. And everybody makes their monsters. We work for 20 minutes or a half hour. And then we get together and show what we've done. And people get to talk about it. And people are talking about their monsters. Except for this one guy. Who's sort of hanging back. And I'm looking at his sculpture. The rest of it makes sense to me. His makes no sense to me whatsoever. It's just a block of clay, maybe three inches high by six by six inches. But it's got little blocks of clay on it in, in, in rows. And I, I'm watching how he doesn't volunteer to speak. He waits till the end to go. And his story uh, is that 30 years prior to this conference, he was uh, employed by a hospital to find, what was the word he used for it? to find malfeasance. Isn't that an interesting word? And what he found blew him away. He found uh, a psycho nurse in the neonatal clinic who was uh, um, killing babies. Oh. Yeah. And he goes to the hospital administration and fills them in, figuring they're going right to the police. Right. Instead, they have a board meeting and they talk about how to put this word out so that the hospital's reputation doesn't get besmirched. Oh. Having this conversation, two more babies die. Oh. And everybody probably in the group realizes at that same moment that his sculpture is a graveyard. Oh. Yeah. And he's in tears. Um, most of us are in tears, in fact. Right. Um, uh, and he's he's talking about that he's he's never talked about it with his wife. She doesn't know. He's, he's never broached the subject with any of the therapists he's seen. It was only the clay process that brought it out. Huh. Yeah. And then he's in the middle of the circle, and the group is holding him while he cries uh -huh. until he's done. And at that moment, I felt like, what have I got by the tail here? Um. And I began to teach workshops where we began to do exercise uh, uh, that would bring up archetypal material like that. You know, going down to, 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 to 
have an encounter with your inner monsters is an archetypal experience. You know, Freud would say so, Jung would say so. Uh, the person whose um, teachings uh, I've been most trained into, Roberto Assagioli, would certainly say that's an important part of our psyches. Um, and that is that unless we can make friends with those parts of ourselves, we are cut off from also our ability to experience joy and the experience of a connection to our higher self. So you've got to be able to work on both. So I do exercises that come at it from both sides. Um, and the, the yeah. process, I would imagine, frees up a lot of potential within your spirit and your mind to then create more from that because I, I, I would imagine I, well let me ask you do the participants when they're done yeah. do they go on to create more from that experience so that they can release because it's not just that moment you know th there it is and and it's gone I, I would imagine there's some residuals and that they're maybe went on to to make do creations that that reflected that did, did you find that to be true um, I think it's true. What I've given you, I think, is really needs to be seen as a glimpse of a much bigger workshop. Mm. Uh, that, if if that were the workshop and everybody went home, I would say that's not a good workshop, because I think you need you need to be make connection to other parts of yourself to give yourself the strength to put those painful traumatic experiences in a framework where the wounding that's part of it isn't the whole process, but where the, the gift and the wisdom that's associated, that's buried at that site, gets to resurface and put, gets put to use in your daily life. Uh, so more exercises are really crucial there. And uh, So uh, that, that went on. That wasn't the end. Uh, that was you, the beginning of the workshop. That was just you the beginning. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And so this is the first part. So you've been doing this for, for a while now, um, mm -hmm. at these workshops and, uh, and still, still, um, d just doing the pinch pottery for now. No, no other, no other pottery. Do you find yourself going back? Oh, well, that's actually not true. I do. Oh, other, okay. I don't do other pottery, but I do other clay work. Okay. And I don't know when we should talk about whether that's, uh, uh, segue or or we should come back to that yeah no let's let's talk about because um it's interesting the uh does that experience then it seems like um part of what you've um uh described is is a way to actually tap into a greater part of yourself that 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 then it becomes easier to express yourself through art would and um would, would you say that to be true or is it um, so it's easier to kind of, because if you have those blocks, like you were saying, um, when you go through that experience, um, oh. if you don't, then you're going to have those blocks. And I would imagine those blocks, um, would tend to, to prevent people. Like, let's say somebody has writer's block. Well, it might not just be writer's block. It might be this deeper, uh, barrier and they need to go through that. They don't just need to just keep writing, but they actually, well, they could use the writing too, but what? What I mean is that if if yeah. people are stuck, it is tied to a deeper aspect of themselves, not just their art that they're creating. Right. I think we get stuck 
because there's something deeper that 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 uh, that's holding us back. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think people who write get writer's block more than people who sculpt get sculptor's block. <laughs> um, maybe that's because when we write, we use the cognitive parts of our consciousness first and foremost. And then when you work with a, a tactile material, as tactile as clay is, you know, uh, then you're working with different parts of your consciousness. Um, as a psychosynthesis psychotherapist, I also focus on intuition and feelings and sensation as modes of consciousness um, that can help us get at those places where we might be blocked cognitively. I think that's the why it worked for this man is because he wasn't thinking about it. He just started working in the clay and oh, look what I've done. I didn't know I was I was working on that even. And there it is in front of me. It came out while I wasn't looking. I think it was might describe what his experience was. Right. And allowing your uh, you know for, for everybody to have the freedom to do that be, um to say, okay, I'm going to give myself um, time to just explore with, instead of creating art for commerce, let's say, yeah. or, or <laughs> I have to, you know, do this, allowing yourself time to explore uh, with the clay or with the, um, you know, canvas or with writing to say, let's see what's behind some of the stuff I might be ignoring. And, um, you, you know, Let's just explore that that aspect, and when you do, it helps unblock and also um, makes you more creative. So that when you go back to your the, the art that you have to do for commerce, let's say, mm. not have to, but you're doing for commerce, um, yeah. it actually enlivens it. It 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 it, it gives it a breath of fresh air. It uh, you know that process of um, so because some people I, I what I'm getting at is some people might not think that they sh can ever take the time to do that that workshop or they might not ever be able to take the time to just um you know explore in that in that way and yeah. instead you have to say well actually when you do take that time it helps your life but it also helps you uh, be more creative and, with the stuff you're you're selling the, the junk the you know the positioning between art and commerce is that it's such a big question. Um, you know, after uh, I had that experience at the Beaver Pond, my work changed. I stopped throwing on the wheel and became a hand builder, uh, pressing plants into clay that I would add color to. So I was doing landscapes. Which, it was an attempt to express my spiritual experience in the art form. And I found it very satisfying for a long time. And it was commercially successful. People may or may not have had any sense of what it was doing for me. They only knew what their own uh, uh, inner response was, and that was enough for them. Maybe I would talk about it with people. Maybe I would not. It varied a lot. Certainly talking to hundreds of people about it at craft fairs was just a bit much. Yeah. But share it here and there. Um, and it was successful enough so that after a while, I had not just one uh, apprentice, but I went from an apprenticeship idea to having out-and-out -out employees. And at some point, I had four. Wow. Yeah. Now, you, 
couldn't you synthesize the message into a card much like you did with the pinch uh, uh, pots? Uh, you, you know, so um, you know, so you're at the workshop. You won't be able to to give that message to everybody because it could be comes tiring but did you synthesize a message that you could give out with the with the pottery or did you um i did not uh i didn't write about it i was not i was not writing anything in my life at that point gotcha uh i was still in the throes of a, a college wound about uh, english poetry writing that got take that got healed a lot later uh, but what did happen was I began to feel little by little that the process that was expressing an, uh, an epiphany was turning into a grind. I was showing up for work no matter how my body felt, no matter what the weather was, because if I didn't show up, my employees might not have anything to do since I hadn't let go of enough of the process so that there were pieces I didn't touch. I touched everything at some point, but I didn't do any of the packing and shipping and I didn't mix any of the glazes. But if I wasn't there, they were stuck and I had responsibility for them feeding their families. So it got very confusing doing the work that I loved and the commercialism of it. Um, How did you make your way around that? That came in bits and pieces. Um, uh, I was in a men's group. Um, I'm actually still in that men's group. This was 1998. This men's group um, went on a vision quest in the Escalante Canyons of U southern Utah for 12 days. Um, and I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Native American uh, vision quest experience, but after some uh, clarification amongst the group of what individuals intentions are for their solo journey out in the wilderness you go off on your own and you fast in the wilderness for four days and nights um, and on the first day um, down in the bottom of the canyon was quite hot and I stepped into the Escalante River to cool off which was all snow melt and uh, it immediately stimulated my bladder and I had a take a leak and I looked down and I was pissing blood. Ooh. Yeah. Ah. And, you know, something says to me, this is no small matter. This is serious. Right. Okay. There's eight of us here doing vision quests off in different little nooks and crannies of the canyon. I don't remember who's got the keys to the car that we rented. Right. Um, I don't know where his vision quest spot is. Right. Um, and if I did, I could take the car and it's 20 miles back to the car, then 20 miles on the craziest road back to the dirt road that leads you into a town so I could go to a hospital. What am I going to do about this? And I decided I prayed. I was supposed to pray for a vision. I'd received one. <laughs> and I've got you know, three and a half days and nights to go. Let's just go with this. And so I sat with that, you know, contemplating the fact that, you know, I might be facing my death and I might not come back. So what's important to me? Those were the questions. And the place that I chose for the last night of sitting in a, in a purpose circle, a, you know, 20 foot circle, and you don't move out of it, was under a cliff face. And then when I looked back at the cliff face, I was looking at Anasabi, Anasazi um, pictographs. 
Oh, wow. That I couldn't understand. But they clearly were trying to communicate some piece of wisdom. So when I came back from that vision quest and went to the doctor and got tested and realized I had bladder cancer that was not serious and that finding it then had saved my life, I started to also think about the wisdom of ancient languages and I started to um, do a wholly different work that was not in colored clay, not pressing plants into clay, but was about looking like ancient Mesopotamian tablets in a, in a language that nobody understands. I was creating a, a language and making uh, clay stamps out of it and stamping it into flat slabs of clay. Um, and not knowing what you know, somebody else might see it as. So I found myself in the position of having to explain that to people looking at this work, that this represents a lost language, from a lost civilization whose wisdom we could desperately need right now because look at the situation we find ourselves in socially, environmentally, the world's going to hell and we could use some wise voices and we've lost them. We can't understand what they were trying to tell us. So I'm stamping stuff into clay to represent that, to try to help people to focus their energy on being connected to ancient sources of wisdom, the ones that our culture denies are important. And how was it received? How, how, how did that, um, yeah, how, how did that end out then with, with the, uh, the pieces that you made? Well, I didn't get to find out for a while. I came back and started to do that work. Um, I had surgery and the, the, there's, this uh, uh, grade zero malignancy was removed and I, I, I get tested every couple of years and there's been a few mores but I, that's not a scary issue in my life anymore I figure that's not probably what's going to kill me right. <laughs> um, in 2002 after taking a year's sabbatical to study with a slew of people I was in a serious car wreck a head on collision and I got hit from behind too um and I heard a little voice in my ear as I saw the headlights coming up at me and said, this is it, fella. And as I'm pushing on the steering wheel and stomping on the non-existent clutch and on the brake, I was thinking that voice meant you're about to die. And uh, obviously I did not. Right. But right. I couldn't work in clay for a couple of years. I was just too sore. Uh, I, was, uh, I went to every healer I could. Yeah, yeah, physical therapist, the chiropractor, massage people, psychotherapists, blah blah blah. You name it. I went to it, did yoga, qigong, um, and I am a lot better than that now. And I do some of that work. And oh, by the way, every once in a while, peace sells. Um, it's not commercially viable the way the old work was, uh, unless perhaps I spent more time marketing myself and found out, oh, yeah, it's uh, more widely marketable than I thought it was when I was way out in the field trying to sell my work. But I'm not interested in being out in the field selling my work. I do not go to shows anymore. It's too hard to stand on a, on a floor, concrete floor, under sodium vapor lights. Um, but, it's too but, hard to, on my body to schlep my work back and forth in the van and unload, set up, take it down at the end. I don't want it. My body doesn't want to do it, and I don't want to do it. I'd rather teach. 
I'd rather see clients one-on-one. I'd rather do a piece when I feel like doing it and yeah. not because I have to meet a standard or to meet a deadline. And so I never did go back to that way of life, but I do pieces here and there, not and, a lot. And you and, still are motivated. You still feel... Um... Yeah, motivated to, to make those pieces, even though, you know, they're, you, you get feedback for, uh, from people that keeps yeah. your motivation going, I, I would imagine, um, uh, positive feedback. And, and uh, so that, that even though you don't have the um, commercial uh, feedback, you know, they're not selling like, you know, uh, as, the, as your pieces were before because you're not putting the work into to the marketing, but you're getting, still getting feedback from the people who do get them, right? And so you... Thanks. Yeah, you still have the motivation that way. Right. It seems like it's um, almost a you know a, an ideal to be able to to work from that space to uh, you know to to just create and have it be appreciated where you don't have to say okay um, I'm going to create this to be sold. Yeah, um, it, it must be liberating. I'm in a great spot right now. Yeah, um, my main motivators are not other people's responses to the work uh, i've got a piece sitting in my dining room now that i think i want to hold on to for a while and the the motivation to it came while i was out walking uh, in the centrals the putney central school forest uh, i live about three houses down from our, from the putney central school which is the local public school and when they built it they built it on a piece of land that included a 175 acre forest and i I'm one of the volunteers who takes kids out and does programs out there. But one day I'm walking out there by myself and there's a piece of paper wired to a tree. And I look at this piece of paper and somebody has laminated a poem in plastic. Um, and I'm reading this poem. Um, it's um, a Billy Collins poem called uh, While Eating a Pear. And I realize it speaks to my experience of life. You know, after we've gone, after we have finished here, eating a pear maybe, or being alive, the world will continue its quiet turning without us. That's the gist of the poem. Um, and so I went back to the studio, rolled out a flat slab of clay, and got some uh, plastic stamps and began stamping this entire poem into the clay. Hmm. And then breaking off pieces of it so it looks like a broken tablet from Mesopotamia that's 35 years old that's nice. dug at a site. Except that it's not a text about uh, the sale of coffee beans or uh, the story of Inanna. It's a poem that happens to appeal to me. It's a, it's a wisdom tradition that might very well be amongst the lost wisdom traditions someday if we don't change our behavior, right. mentally speaking. So I've been doing more of them. Oh, that's nice. It's a yeah. nice way to approach it. Um, you know, you you came back from that walk and just created what you saw. Right. Yeah. And I wait until a text comes along that says to me, Ooh, I want to do that one. Right. And then I do it. I'm also doing a lot of three-dimensional sculptural pieces. Um, um, none of them other than uh, one that's five six years old has made it to the website yet. I haven't gotten around to asking the person who manages our website to, to load them up yeah. for me. Yeah. I'll get to it one of these days. Right. Right. Uh, um, nice. Uh, 
Yeah. And they're all ancestors. And they have the text, the, the old text uh, from um, the Mesopotamian, the one that I created. Right. Out of blue on them. And they also have texts in English in very small type that I got from staples. Uh, things like, may all beings enjoy happiness and the root of happiness, which is part one of a well-known Buddhist prayer. You know, so those kinds of things show up in my work these days. You you bring it out. It seems like from all you've described, you you know bring um, bring out the deeper aspects of of your life into what you've done, and it it you <laughs> you've gone to these extreme places. Um, you know, from enlightenment at the pond to, uh, you, you know, uh, car rides where you thought it was the end to the vision quest where it's it's not uh, just your mundane experiences. These are these are places you've you've visited that are at, at the core of you've gotten to the core of who you are. And uh, and that's driven. It sounds like it's driven a lot of, of what you've uh, done in terms of your art and then your changes. Um, yeah, you're you're free. Uh, you're free now to just uh, create, which is is a wonderful place to be. And uh, um, what uh, what would you say to the the people you know out there who are creating and have that dynamic? Uh, you know, it's that constant um, um, dynamic between commerce and being free to create what you want. Uh, you know, as an expression of of what you see and who you are. Uh, what would yeah. you say to those people to be able to to kind of um, juggle between the two worlds of commerce and, and freedom to create? Well, there's no one path. You know, I feel lucky in that uh, some of the life changes that I've had have enabled me to let go of something and take up something else. Mm. Uh, it could easily have been different. I could easily have been in a position where... The easiest thing to sell is still what I need to do. Uh, I read something the other that a student uh, wrote that she had read in a magazine that that if you want to continue to make your living as a potter, you have to make mugs. And I realized, okay, I used to make a hundred mugs a day at the end of each work cycle, and I haven't made mugs in twenty five years except to, to demonstrate how to make them for a student. And I'm perfectly happy not to be able to not to have to do that. But there's other people in my collective ceramic studio who are doing that right now. And should they feel constrained uh, by the fact that they don't necessarily get to do some sculptural idea that they fantasized, or, do, or should they feel grateful that they get to make 100 mugs a day as opposed to flipping burgers a hundred burgers a day at McDonald's. <laughs> and it's pretty clear that things are very relative. But it's also very clear that if you keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, that what was once an epiphany is going to wind up as a pothole in the middle of the street and you're going to keep falling in it. So you've got to find some way of balancing that whole thing out. It can be remembering to feel grateful for it while you're doing it, while it's paying your bills. It could mean taking a break from it to do something else that may or may not have a commercial application. 
and in fact may very well wind up having one at some point. One of my favorite stories is about um, uh, a Japanese uh, living treasure, formerly living treasure, uh, who had a show in probably Tokyo and sold everything in the show except one piece that nobody wanted to touch. And he brought it back to the studio and showed it to the apprentices and he said, look at this piece very carefully. It's the new standard. Um, and he realized that there's just this other factor that has to be um, allowed besides what pays the bills or sooner or later uh, you're going to die of what kept you going for a while right it's... You know, you're going to wind up with back aches and, and, and ankle pains because you've done the same activity over and over again. You're going to wind up bored if you do the same thing over and over again because you've got pieces of you that aren't getting their chance to express themselves. So you've got to get some time in there for it somehow. Yeah, to, to keep, the, keep your spirit uh, alive. <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe it's uh, gardening, you know. Maybe it's not something that gets framed. Maybe it's, oh, I'm growing melon, uh, tomatoes. Uh, that can be uh, a source of creativity. It might be the time you spent with your kids if you have kids. That's a, a place where creativity manifests very strongly, I think, if you've got time for it. It does not have to be in what you, you call your art. Your life is your art. Nice. Not your art is your art. Your life is your art. That's perfect, Alan. That's, that's perfect. So, all right. Thank you very much, Alan. It's, it's been great to have you on the show. There's so much uh, in here. Uh, I can't wait to go back through and, uh, and pull some of the quotes out. And um, thank you very much for, for being on and, uh, and, and sharing your journey with us. Yeah, and I appreciate the opportunity you've given me. Thank you. <laughs>